This is Nirmukta, breaking the spell. Hello everyone, this is episode 5 of the Nirmukta radio podcast and I have some news for all the listeners out there. This will be the last episode of this series of the Nirmukta radio podcast. We will begin a new series of Nirmukta radio starting next month, September 2010. In this series, we will feature a number of hosts and a new and revamped podcast format. I hope that you will continue listening to and supporting the new Nirmukta radio podcast starting next month. For today's show, I've compiled a series of conversations that I've had with a number of people on different subjects concerning free thought. This first conversation is between myself, Raki Rath, another editor at Nirmukta, and Professor Narendra Nayak, the president of the Federation of Indian Rationalist Associations. days I've been in Uttar Pradesh and we have had three wonderful training programs where we had about 30 trainees from all parts of uh, the state in each of the training programs and I think we should be getting at least 10 to 15 activists from all the three training programs who can just go to people and convey our message to them but the wonderful thing was that the that we got wonderful media coverage during this particular tour because it started with one, and then there was a sort of cascade effect. Interesting. Uh, Raki, were you also with him during this program? No, I wasn't there during this program, but I was there during the uh, Bihar tour in April. And the great part about uh, about Professor Nike's training programs are not only does he give the science behind the miracles, the explanation. He actually performs them and then gets others to perform it on themselves as well to, to make doubly sure that it's not just neither does he have special powers nor do they have special powers. Uh, the only sort of powers we have are the ones that are natural powers, our own powers. Rocky, before we get into that, I'd like to ask Professor Nayak, how exactly did this begin? Did the studios approach you directly or did they call you? It started in Lucknow. I think that was on the 5th of June. One of the reporters of a, uh, I think it's the most widely viewed uh, news channels in Hindi, called as uh, India TV. That reporter had come to our program. She was very much impressed with our things like firewalk and dipping your hands into boiling oil and all. So she wanted me to do that live in her studios. And that was supposed to be for one hour. It went on for nearly two and a half hours. And that was the beginning and then they wanted me to fly immediately to Delhi so that they could have me live in the studios the very next day. But I said it's not possible because the next day our training program is to go on. So they said we'll get you at the nearest opportunity. So when I was going from Allahabad to our next program at Bhagpat, which is about 40 kilometers from Delhi, I got a call from them. They said we are going to pick you up from where your train ends. And then take it. I had a day free. So I went to Delhi and we had two and a half hour training. I mean, a program live, which is now being posted on the uh, YouTube by Swapnil and Swati. And anyway, I've got a live studio recording of that, which I'm giving to 
then what happened was on the very next day india tv wanted me in their delhi studios live so that came up and then two days later that was on tuesday we were to have this very dramatic thing like samadhi where somebody gets buried alive in the underground fire walking all those things and on that particular day we had two ob vans from some of the two top tv channels and we had 15 other tv channels waiting to cover and maybe 10 persons from the print media they were probably more in number than our trainees and that was when we were on news for nearly i think for two days professor nike you mentioned something about people getting buried alive underground uh, can you please elaborate on that getting buried underground was done by two young girls and that was the one which really shook the people that two young girls anju and sanju that they took samadhi was the thing that hit the whole state of up that you don't require to be a old man with a long beard and a lot of meditation and yoga stuff to do this samadhi <laughs> business i think that was one of the turning points there that's why i'm saying we had 17 tv channels running our uh, program which is a sort of record because we hardly have this and many of the newspapers have carried a half page write up with four five photographs and we are all going to put them up i am going to get this scan copy soon there is a market for the stuff it's just that nobody has been doing it before like they say one image is worth a thousand words right right and Professor Nike adds to that one image is worth a thousand words and one performance is worth a thousand images. <laughs> I'd like to switch topics here a little and uh, talk about something that was in the news recently. Siddharth RS, who is one of the Nirmukta members on the Facebook group, posted this story about farmers in Orissa performing ceremonies, uh, rituals to please the rain gods. Have you, Professor Nike, come across anything like this on your travels? we come across a story of almost every monsoon last year we were in madhya pradesh where the government was sponsoring a lot of pujas for rain and one of the reporters of a newspaper she took the statistics and she showed that it rained better when pujas were not done i happen to be from orissa i can't say i'm very proud of the things that are happening there no they married a girl to a dog in orissa <laughs> Yeah, I think similar superstitions involving marrying an animal or even an inanimate object are common in other parts of India. For example, there's a famous picture from Tamil Nadu of a man marrying a dog. A man marrying a dog? That usually never happens. Why was the man marrying a dog? Yeah, I'm not really sure what their reasoning is, but it probably has something to do with getting rid of bad luck or some other superstition like that. No, they have got this custom in Mangalore side where they marry somebody off to a banana tree. Yeah, a mangling. Yeah. Yeah. They did that to Aishwarya Rai. <laughs> See, we're nationally integrated on our superstitions. 
Another related topic that recently came up on the forums has to do with inter-religious marriages. Uh, it has to do mostly with uh, the idea of moral policing that exists within these uh, society, religious societies where the women are usually pressured by uh, men, groups of men or usually even the families to marry within you know, their religious uh, societies and often this translates to uh, persecution of young couples and so on. Do you have anything to say about this? Inter-religious couples, they will get the protection of the community of the boy usually. Because the girl is looked upon as a sort of acquisition. So say Muslim boy marries a Hindu girl, the Muslim will rally behind the Muslim boy. And if it's the other way around, the Hindus will rally around the Hindu boy. And usually the girl gets converted to the religion of the boy. Yeah, and that's uh, what happens. I'd like to add to that. Actually, uh, I did some work regarding this, and there is a separate, um, what would I say, a, a separate uh, organization called Hindu Nari Raksha Samiti, so, uh, which, which basically it's a, it's a saffron outfit, and uh, their job is to rescue Hindu women who have. Uh, you know, gullible Hindu women who have fallen to the yeah forcibly taken away by these evil Muslim men. So th that can, I mean, that includes women who are who are already married to Muslim men or uh, are suspected to have a relationship or you know even a friendship with Muslim men, and they they actually have a dedicated outfit to. Uh, to retrieve and rescue these uh, women, so, so it's a absolutely gundagardi and hooliganism and vandalism. And, and, and they do it to the poor people, lower middle class people, mm -hmm. most middle class. Somebody like Shahrukh Khan marries a Hindu girl, and there's nothing these people can do about it. Professor Naik, do you think that the reservation system that we have in India to help? the so-called lower castes get admission in colleges and universities in India. Do you think that it's a fair system? Um, I know this is a sensitive topic, but I'm bringing it up because it came up on our forums and there are a lot of people who call themselves rationalists who do not agree with the reservation system. And I was wondering what your opinion is on this subject. See, the way the Dalits have been exploited through the centuries and the way their living conditions are, and the way the mentality of the people here goes, I feel that the, the reservation is fully justified. If you are talking about reservation in jobs, you are talking about reservation in education. How many seats do you think are reserved for Dalits in the institution? Do you know how many seats are reserved for the people of the money? And all of these people are upper caste? And let me take any religious institution. Let's take a temple where uh, worship has been going on. Will they take a Dalit as a priest? Just uh, if he learns Sanskrit and he can do the pujas. And there are education institutions run on public money. And you know who owns them? They are supposedly registered charitable societies and trusts, which are actually family undertakings. And then they sell seeds to the highest bidder. And then these people talk about merit. What nonsense merit is that? In India, there are more seats we go to people who have money than any reservation for people on the basis of caste. Professor like, why, why don't you elaborate on your experience as a student where you went and worked in uh, yeah. uh, Dalit. Dalit colony? Yeah. See, I, I too was like this a long, long time back. But when I was doing my master's in Kasturba Medical College, Manipal, 
I changed my whole mindset. Because at that time I started working among the Dalits. And I saw that in that particular college there was a reservation. There are two reservations. The seats for all the courses were reserved for the rich. While one category of jobs was reserved exclusively for Dalits. And that was to put the dead bodies on the dissection tables. There was no Brahmin, there was no OBC, there was no person from any other caste among those who were putting the dead bodies on the uh, dissection table. So it was a great reservation and nobody asked for the de-reservation either. Nobody talked about merit there because, you know, to a Hindu, touching a dead body is just anything. Nobody will want to touch a dead body. And that is where I started my thinking process. And I started working among them. I saw the way the children were. And I saw the exploitation going on. Those children used to go to the mess. Ask them where you are going. They say we are going to the mess. And we are wondering why they are going to the mess. They are going to the mess to take the leftovers from the mess to their houses. And I felt it was very wrong. But I just couldn't say anything about it because there was no alternative. At least if they were taking the leftovers from the mess home, they would have had something to eat. If I said don't do that, they would be starving. So that was the miserable condition of the day. That's all that made me change my whole attitude towards these things. And as uh, more and more experiences came out of it, I saw that the Dalits are really oppressed. And there are even among the Dalits, there are some who are more oppressed than the others. That you try for that matter. You throw people away from their lands and it's taken over by industries, taken over by the mining lobby, who make billions out of it, pass on the spoils to the politicians. And these people are left begging on the roadside. They are displaced from the land where they have been there since thousands of years. So this is the way the things are happening. So I think reservation is fully justified. If you want to remove reservation, remove the reservation for the rich first. Say that everything is going to be on merit. There is no question of the children of the rich paying money and getting seats. Yeah. Have reserve, uh, have open, uh, uh, what is that, recruitment. When in temples, you have open recruitment in these religious institutions. Say like the Mats, where the same caste people keep on becoming the Swamiji's. And they control billions and billions. There also let them have a competitive examination. The one who knows the most of the Vedas and Slokas and things etc. Let them become the head of that. Is it going to happen? Never. The next conversation that you're going to hear is with Hamant Mehta, the author of I Sold My Soul on eBay, and the man behind the friendly atheist blog. Until recently, Hamant served as chair of the board of directors at the Secular Student Alliance, an organization based in the US whose mission it is to quote, organize, unite, educate, and serve students and student communities that promote the ideals of scientific and critical inquiry, democracy, secularism, and human-based ethics. Essentially, I grew up in the Jain faith, and I became an atheist when I was 14. And around when I was 22, I realized, you know, I work with a lot of atheists, but I've never been to any 
temple or mosque or synagogue that wasn't part of my Jain faith growing up. So I wanted to go to all these, you know, different places. Um, and he said, long story short, I put up this post on eBay, the auction website that said, uh, I will go to wherever the highest bidder wants me to go. And a Christian pastor won the auction. Um, and he said, why don't you go to a bunch of different Christian churches and write about them on his website? Um, and I did that. And a publisher was really interested in that. And they said, hey, uh, after you're done going to places for him, why don't we send you to a bunch of Christian churches around the country, around America, and we'll put that into a book. And that book was called I Sold My Soul on eBay. And so uh, I, I basically became kind of a secret shopper for churches and, and going to all these mega churches and small churches, letting them know what it felt like as an atheist to walk into those places. Do you think that the reason why you had this sort of reception from America in general was because you came from, you know, you weren't uh, raised in the Christian faith, you weren't just any other atheist, you know, you were somebody who came from a, a different faith and, you were tr and also a different ethnicity, and you were traveling the country and visiting all these churches, you know, something that's considered, you know, so mainstream in, in middle America? Yeah, I, I think it definitely helped. Um, I certainly didn't have any of the baggage that a lot of former Christians might have about the church. I, I really went in only with stereotypes because, you know, the only thing I knew about church is what I'd heard from other atheists, which, let's face it, is not very, you know, objective, um, or what I'd seen on TV. And so I really went in uh, never having been there before. So it was really interesting. And uh, after this episode, after, you know, you went to these churches and then your book came out and it was met with a lot of success, is that correct? There was an article, there was some publicity given to this church going, um, and it was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And, and that really just brought a lot of publicity to the story and what we were doing. That actually is what led to the book uh, happening. Mm -hmm. um, and really, after all that happened... You know, I, I didn't want to be known as just the guy who's, you know, quote unquote, sold his soul on eBay. I, I don't even believe in a soul. <laughs> but uh, what I wanted to do is, you know, I, I know a lot of atheists. I work with a lot of atheist groups. I want to spread that way of thinking. Um, so I, I really just, after all this kind of died down, I started a website called FriendlyAtheist.com where I've been blogging about religion, atheism for, man, o over three years now. Friendly atheist. You wouldn't think that would be such a big success, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really, and first of all, let me clarify that that name is not because I'm friendly and everyone else is evil and mean. Um, it's because I know so many atheists and they're all really nice people. So, you know, why don't we, why, why do we always hear about aggressive atheists and militant atheists and never about friendly atheists? Um, but yeah, what's really been surprising is despite the fact that there was a book and the Wall Street Journal article, um, I, I'm probably better known for the website than writing the book and going to those churches, which is kind of strange. But uh, I, I'm glad because uh, it really gives me an opportunity to say and write whatever I want. I think most people that I know and who know you as well, I think they would know you more from the website. Yeah, so. it's weird because, uh, you know, there are people who may not be open about their atheism. They may be afraid about, you know, to talk about it with other people. But they feel like they know me pretty well and because they read my stuff every day. They read the website every day. And I think I, I know a lot of bloggers who could say the same thing where people really connect with bloggers who write on a consistent basis because you feel like you really know their mind. You know what they're thinking. You could, you know, with some bloggers, you could write their posts for them because you know how their mind works. And, and that's very comforting to know that there are other people out there that feel the same way about religion that you do. 
you sort of have seemed to corner the niche when it comes to you know personalizing uh, the the atheist experience. You know, there are very few atheists who have done this. Most atheists, uh, in my experience of or at least the atheists that I usually tend to read, are very intellectual in their approach. And, yeah, you know, they tend they're to very philosophical and. And that's boring. I mean, it, it's not that it's uh, it's not that it's not needed. I mean, some people really connect with you know philosophers who give an intellectual reason for being an atheist, and that's all well and good. I'm much more interested in much in in the personal stories and uh, how it. Uh, and now that you are an atheist, how does that affect you? I'm way more interested in stories like that. I, I write a lot more about you know, personal stories about people trying to date other atheists or how can an atheist date someone who's not uh, an atheist? Uh, there's a guy named Richard Wade who writes on my website who is a former counselor, retired now, who gives advice to atheists who have issues in their life. I mean, that's much more personal to me and more meaningful than an argument as to why religion is wrong. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, it's not like I shy away from that, but it's less interesting and less personal. What you're offering is community, something that atheists have been denied for you know, yeah. the majority of our ex existence. And well, we've always had the philosophers, we've always had you know, the, the deep thinkers, but people like you are forging a new path forward for atheism. I appreciate that, and I hope that's the case. I've been seeing a lot of that in America with local communities. There's a lot of local atheist groups starting up in places you would never suspect atheists to feel comfortable coming out of the closet. <laughs> Um, but they're happening. I mean, the Secular Student Alliance that I work with, uh, we, we help start groups on college campuses for other atheists. And we've grown in the past couple of years. We've, we've more than tripled in size uh, in just the past couple of years. We've been around for 10 years, and it's only in the last couple of years we've skyrocketed in terms of the number of groups. We have well over 200 now. So that, that's actually a good segue. That leads me right into where I wanted you know, us to go here. How did you go from being, you know, Hamant Mehta who went to all these churches and then wrote the book about selling his soul on eBay from there to actually now being the, the chair of the board of directors for the Secular uh -huh. Student Alliance in America? Sure. Well, that, that actually is in reverse chronological order. Uh, when I started college before all the, well, before all the eBay stuff happened, I, I really wanted to meet other atheists because I really didn't know any. So I started a group at my college with a friend of mine, uh, and we started an atheist group, basically. And we brought in speakers and debaters, and we did uh, joint projects with religious groups on campus. It was great. And the friend of mine that I started it with said, you know, we should affiliate ourselves with this thing called the Secular Student Alliance. Um, and I didn't know what that was, but essentially it's a, a nationwide network of atheist college groups. And if we affiliated... That would give us access to things like uh, grants if we wanted to travel to conferences. They would pay for some of that. Or if, they wa if we wanted to bring speakers, they would help us out with that. So that way, I mean, it was a win-win situation. So I, I got involved with them then. And after I graduated from college, I really liked the, the group. I wanted to still be involved. So I ran for their board of directors, and I, I won that election. I, I won one of the seats in the election. And ultimately, it's been, uh, man, over five years now. Ultimately, I was just elected to to be the leader of the board, which is the position I'm in now, um, and I will be at least for a little while longer. So uh, that, that's how I got involved with the Secular Student Alliance. I learned something now. I, I had no idea that you were actually involved with them before you had written the book. 
Yeah, it was weird because uh, a lot of people in the atheist community knew me before all the eBay stuff happened. So this was just kind of a, it wasn't like I came out of nowhere when that happened. Um, I mean, I pretty much had some established atheist uh, bona fides with me <laughs> when, I, when I did that. I wasn't joking about really being an atheist. Um, so it, it was nice to be able to give some publicity to the Secular Student Alliance when the media happened with the book. Let me uh, ask you a little bit more about Secular Student Alliance itself. Yeah. Like, what exactly is the Secular Student Alliance? Sure. Well, it's a nonprofit organization, and a lot of religious groups do this. The most famous one in America is called Campus Crusade for Christ. But it, it's we have a central office in Columbus, Ohio. We have three full-time staff members uh, who are paid a salary. Um, and what they do for us is they run this organization that helps support the over 200 campus groups we have across the country. Um, we help them with issues they might have in leading a group and finding interesting ideas for uh, events on campus and bringing in, like I said, speakers. Um, one of our groups is actually, a couple of our groups actually, uh, are partnering up with religious groups on campus so that over spring break, together, they can all go down to places like New Orleans, Louisiana and help with some of the hurricane damage that's been there for years now. Um, I mean, so it, we're, they're really doing some fantastic projects. Um, and we try to help them and give them money and uh, support them in whatever ways they need. Sometimes what they need is just advice from other people who have done it more than anything else. And we can really provide some expertise where uh, there really isn't anyone else who can offer that. Mm -hmm. So, Hamid, it seems to me that, you know, this organization has already been doing, you know, the kind of work that you're talking about. And, you know, in India, we've just, we're just starting to do this kind of work. You know, we, we don't really have any representation for free thought in schools and colleges and universities. I mean, we're far from that at this point. But what I'm interested in, what, you know, the people who I work with, what we're interested in doing is getting mm -hmm. people, people in schools and universities from around the country to get involved in free thought. So, That's fantastic. Thank you. So how exactly do you think we should approach it? I mean, this is a very general question, but how do you think we can initiate uh, such a process? I, I think the best way to start is if you know anyone who is willing to lead a group on any college campus, get one of them going and make sure it's successful. Um, maybe get a couple of them going at the same time and help them uh, have really strong events that people of all religions and no religion are interested in attending. Because very rarely do religious groups, at least in America, very rarely do religious groups do anything that really uh, scrutinizes their own beliefs. They just don't do it. They don't want anyone coming in telling them they're wrong. Um, and they're not going to put their faith under any magnifying glass. So holding events such as a debate on the existence of God or a conversation on you know what happens in the afterlife, those are really good events to start off with. And if you can get a couple of groups doing that, hopefully it won't be too hard to get them to work together on projects. And when other or colleges and other students see what they're doing, hopefully they have a way to you can give them advice to start their own groups on campuses and kind of join this network. The hardest thing is really just getting those first few groups started, because once you do that, other ones will start coming to you instead of the other way around. What we're trying to do is sort of you know bring people together for the positive aspects of community and, and social belonging that, you know, an atheist group or a free thought network can bring. My question is, is there a difference when you're approaching uh, different demographics? Like if you're going to approach, uh, let's say, an older crowd versus if you're going to approach a younger crowd. And how would you, you know, model atheism or free thought when you're approaching a younger crowd? 
Well, with the younger crowd, they're definitely more interested in those personal stories because a, a lot of them are coming from religious families. And this is the first time they're, they're really willing to talk about this stuff. So when I talk to them, I try to really bring up those issues that uh, are important to them, how to come out as an atheist to your friends and your family. Um, how, do you, uh, how should you discuss religion with people around you in a way that, uh, you know, you could still make your point without necessarily shutting out the other people? Um, whereas the older crowd has been, usually they're very opinionated, and they've been thinking these thoughts for a long time. You don't need to tell them how to tell other people they're atheists. Um, but you're really getting their help to support, you know, uh, uh, campaigns that might try to point out how ridiculous, like, spiritual uh, healing is or medicine that has no basis in science. I mean, usually the older crowd is much more interested in uh, getting rid of that woo, that irrational type of thinking. The point is, how do you get... Uh, people who have been steeped in religion and, and superstition for so much of their life, how do you get them to understand that that stuff doesn't have any real effect? Um, and, and the way to do it is to get people to talk to the people close to them and let them know what they're thinking. Because how many uh, Indian people do we know who just hide those thoughts? I mean, I can tell you how uh, dozens of people that I grew up with who will openly admit to not being very, who are not religious at all anymore. But they're never going to tell their parents that. They don't make a big point about saying that out loud. They just kind of keep it to themselves or to me if we're talking about it. Um, we need people like that to come out to their family and say, here's, I, I don't believe these religious beliefs that I was brought up with. And it's not a bad thing. I'm not a bad person. I'm still an ethical good person. But let me explain to you why I don't believe some of this stuff, because that's the way you get some of the people who have been entrenched in it for so long to listen. Uh, you're definitely opening up one uh, avenue which I hadn't considered before. Like our focus has been mostly on outreach and you know looking outward, but you're saying we should also try to get people to talk to themselves, talk to their families and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, they have to come out. I mean, I know there's, and again, you have to play this smart. I know if I come out to my family, uh, they're not going to disown me. I know they're going to still love me and everything like that. So I, I, I waited for a long time before I told them. But I eventually did. Um, there are some people who, but who don't even feel comfortable telling their husband or wife or their boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, how could you keep something that personal to yourself? Uh, yeah. um, that's crazy. I mean, we need people to be able to come out, which is why groups like the Bangalore group you were talking about are so important because you need a group of people that you could feel comfortable talking about this stuff with without feeling the need to censor yourself. Are you guys involved in any campaigns at the moment? Um, well, we've been working with the Secular Coalition for America, which is a lobbying group in Washington, D.C., um, that fight, that lobbies on behalf of non-religious people. We actually went with them to the White House um, a few weeks ago uh, to meet with members of the Obama administration to talk about some of our issues. Hey, Matt, let me just stop you there because yeah. the thing is a lot of people, most people in India, I would say, don't really understand what a lobby is. Briefly explain what a lobby is and maybe even how a lobby would come together. Okay. Um, well, e essentially, the Secular Student Alliance works with the Secular Coalition for America. And what the coalition is, is a, another group, a nonprofit organization that specifically is formed to meet with members of our government to talk about issues that matter to us. Because obviously, you can't get all the millions of atheists to go to Washington, D.C. and talk to congresspeople. 
but we can get a few selected people to talk on our behalf. And so this coalition has been around, <clears throat> excuse me, has been around for a few years. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a chance to meet with members of the Obama administration, members of his staff, to voice our concerns about what we were really concerned about and what we wanted to see them do. Um, now, are they going to act on that? Are they going to actually change anything? Who knows? But it was good to know that they, they know what we have concerns about and uh, they can take that back to people who could actually change the laws or make a difference about it. Speaking of uh, the Obama administration, have you been happy with you know the way things have turned out? Well, up and down. I mean, again, it, it's not about which political party you support or anything, but there are things uh, that uh, we were concerned about. Things like uh, there are people in the military, the American military, commanders who make their uh, officers that work with them who make them pray before they go into battle or in the army, um, they proselytize to them. And we wanted to see a stop to that. And we have not seen that coming from this government. Um, there are uh, issues where there are local churches that might get money to perform community service projects, which, which you know, you can argue whether or not that should be allowed, but, but they do get that money. But in the process, they could say, oh, we're not going to hire this person because they're an atheist. Or they could hire that person and then fire them because he or she is gay or lesbian or an atheist or whatever they don't like. Um, we don't think that sort of discrimination should be allowed to happen when you're getting government money to perform the service. And the Obama administration has not done enough to stop that. Mm -hmm. Hamilton, you bring up a good point when you were just talking now. You sort of mixed in sociocultural aspects that most free thinkers are concerned about things that don't necessarily relate to atheism directly, mm -hmm. but you know things that, as progressives, as most of us are, we should be concerned about. Exactly, so and that's one of the hard things. You ask atheists, like, well, you know, what do you do when you go to meetings? Or you ask non-atheists this, you know, what do you do when you go to meetings? Do you just sit around and not pray? Like, well, that's <laughs> that's all funny and stuff. But no, there are serious issues to talk about because there are. Uh, there are a lot of things that are, are just bad for atheists in our society. You know, if, if, I, if I am an open atheist and I want to run for public office, no one's going to elect me in this country right now because there's such a taboo against atheism. We need to put a stop to that. What's the ratio when it comes to the sexes, in your experience, in, in general, in the Secular Student Alliance? Like, I've been to a few uh, free thought groups here in Long Island, New York, where I live. You know, I've been to a few uh, in the city, and obviously, you know, the, it's more male than female. Yeah. But it's not as bad as, obviously, as India. So what has been your experience? No, my, my experience has been pretty similar. It's usually male-dominated, especially with the older crowd. But I got to tell you, with a lot of these student groups that I've been visiting, it, it's almost uh, half and half. Um, there, I mean, it, there's if, if there's more guys than girls, it's just by coincidence. Uh, it, it, a lot of these college groups get just as many women as they do men, which is awesome. It's great to get women involved in this. Um, and it's been happening a lot more so in the past few years than ever that I've seen. Hemant, have you noticed anything, any, you know, uh, I understand that there are, there are things in the culture at large that sort of conspire to, you know, make it harder for women to come out and express themselves. But what is it in these groups that you've noticed that, you know, where women actually are as uh, equally represented as men, what is it that actually is different about those groups? Yeah, able to I, I think the women there just feel comfortable with the guys that are around them. Um, they feel that their voices are equally heard and they're respected there. 
Um, and, and what's nice is, you know, once you get a couple women to come and they tell their friends and get their friends to come, that's what really gets it rolling. Again, it's, it's all the same where it's if you get a couple people interested and they can talk to the people they know and get them interested, that's really what gets it going. That's what makes it exciting. Um, so, I mean, the, the big thing is getting some of those people who can really get the word out to their community and bringing in more people in the process. So, Heyman, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I hope you'll come on the show again in the future and we talk about, you know, other subjects, like <laughs> stuff that doesn't have to do with the Secular Student Alliance. Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And again, if anyone's interested in contacting me for whatever reason, uh, friendlyatheist.com is my website and you can get me through there. As I said at the beginning of the show, the Nirmukta team is putting together a new and improved podcast which will begin airing next month. The new show will be released on a monthly basis at first, moving to a twice-monthly schedule starting in 2011. More details about the show format, the content, and the new panel of hosts will be posted on our website nirmukta.com. Thank you for listening to the last episode of this series of the Nirmukta Radio podcast. Nirmukta Radio is a production of nirmukta.com. Music is tailored on by Cryptocrat. I'm your host, Ajita Kamal. And I'll leave you this week with these words by the one and only Richard Dawkins. If the universe is queerer than we can suppose, is it just because we've been naturally selected to suppose only what we needed to suppose in order to survive in the Pleistocene of Africa? Or are our brains so versatile and expandable that we can train ourselves to break out of the box of our evolution? Or finally, are there some things in the universe so queer that no philosophy of beings, however godlike, could dream them? <laughs>